and we'll read our last three verses in the chapter, Matthew 23, 37 through 39. This is still Yeshua speaking, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will never see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. May Yahweh bless his word to our hearts today. We've been studying Matthew 23 for about nine weeks now. And I like to read and study chapters in the Bible over and over until I understand them thoroughly. I'm not real big on speed reading or reading a quota in some kind of yearly Bible plan. I'm not necessarily against that, but that's just not how I do it. Maybe some people like it better that way. But I can't comprehend a whole lot at one time. My wife has a lot better reading comprehension than I do. I have to read something over and over to to get it. I have to slow down and dissect the text. And that's what I've been doing in my own studies at home in Matthew 23. And I hope that my teaching through this chapter has given you a better understanding on at least some things. If it's been too much to swallow, I know some of the sermons were more technical than others. That's understandable. That's okay. There's no worries. You can re-listen. If you choose to, you can re-listen to all of the sermons online free of charge. And you can read my study notes if you'd like. I've written all of my sermon notes out and for the whole chapter now right online. I've made all that available to anybody who wants to really dig deep into the text. Lately, we've been centered on verses 34 through 36 in Matthew 23, where Yeshua tells the scribes and Pharisees that he sends holy men to them. We found out that was his disciples from Matthew 10. But the scribes and Pharisees will flog some and murder others. And Yeshua explains that they will fill up the measure of their father's sins, like filling up a cup, and judgment would come upon their generation. As he says in verse 36, all these things will come upon this generation. It is the finale of a scathing rebuke against the leaders of Judah. Their fathers killed the prophets sent to them, and they, the descendants, did the same thing. They would even murder the very son of the landowner sent to them. They would murder the son of Yahweh, Yeshua of Nazareth. We now come to verse 37 where Yeshua continues by saying this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you were not willing. Now, this is an echo of verse 34. Jerusalem here represents the leaders of Judah, the scribes and the Pharisees. Yeshua uses the double Jerusalem, Jerusalem to stress his shouting plea to the leaders that continue to rebel in the nation. She kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Remember in verse 34, Yeshua says to the scribes and Pharisees, I am sending holy men to you and you will murder them. Well, verse 37, Yeshua says, Jerusalem murders the holy men sent to her. Well, Jerusalem is another way of speaking of Judah's leaders. 
Jerusalem being the capital city of Judah. Here again is yet another proof in verse 37 that the scribes and Pharisees Yeshua addresses in this chapter are Israelites because He addresses them by the title, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who stones the prophets who are sent to her. Who does Yeshua send prophets or emissaries to? The lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew chapter 10 verse 6. So if Jerusalem has prophets sent to her and they are stoned, that means that he is sending them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders in Judah, that Yeshua has been rebuking this entire chapter, they are rebellious Israelites. It's just like I was talking with a brother not long ago. It's very, very similar to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 is a scathing rebuke by Yahweh against Judahites, the house of Judah. He calls them dumber than oxen and dumber than donkeys. He says they're an evil generation. He rebukes them sarcastically and says that they're leaders of Sodom and people of Gomorrah. And he says he hates their sacrifices and their new moons and their Sabbaths and he hates their prayers talking to the house of Judah. But then in the end, Yahweh, Yahweh says, Come to me, though your sins be as scarlet, they can be made white as snow. Come let us reason together. I will forgive if you repent. We're going to see an offer of repentance here at the end of this chapter by Yeshua, who is just like his dad, just like his father, Yahweh. Harsh on the unrepentant, but merciful on the repentant. Now, a blunder is often made when people quote Matthew 23, 37. Most of the time you hear someone quote this verse, they'll say something like this from memory. They'll say, quote, Christ told Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you together, but you were not willing. And they say that, that's the end of that quote, but they say that the power of salvation is thus in the creature, it's thus in man. Yeshua wanted to gather them together, but they weren't willing. And so their will thwarted the will for their salvation. But take careful note, that is not what Yeshua says. He says, how often I wanted to gather your children together. Whose children? Jerusalem's children. The people of Judah, as differentiated from the leaders of Judah. The leaders of Judah are Jerusalem in this verse. The children are the people that come to the leaders for direction. Just as Yeshua said in Matthew 23 verse 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you lock up the kingdom of heaven from people. The leaders, Jerusalem, were the ones who were not willing to allow Yeshua to gather the children, the laymen or the people of Judah. So the context is corrupt leadership in Judah. This is not to say that there weren't any people of Jerusalem gathered to Yeshua. And this is not to say that there weren't any leaders in Jerusalem gathered to Yeshua, but they were very minute. Yeshua's point is that as he went out to gather the people of Judah to himself to be their Savior, their Deliverer, the promised Messiah that he was, the one sent by the Father, the leaders of Judah were not willing to let him gather the people because they did not believe he was who he said he was. They did not believe he was Yahweh's Messiah. Now before we move from verse 37, I want you to notice Yeshua's tenderness here. Remember I said that he is merciful. Then, yesterday and today, 
He's merciful on those who are repentant. He's very tender. He's been scathing the religious leaders this whole chapter. As I mentioned in the very first lesson in this chapter, that is who received the harshest rebukes from Yeshua, those who consider themselves to be righteous and not in need of confession or repentance, not in need of any help. But Yeshua was always merciful on the humble and the repentant people in Israel. And His tender mercy, just like His Father Yahweh, is seen here in verse 37 when He says that He wanted to gather the children of Jerusalem together like a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. Now, I liked a Lutheran minister's comments on this verse so much. His name is Paul Kretzman from 1921 that I want to quote him here. This is what Mr. Kretzman says in his commentary on Matthew 23:37. Quote, Now behold how the hen acts. There is hardly an animal that takes such an interest in its young ones. She changes her natural voice and assumes a sorrowful and lamenting call. She seeks, she scratches in the ground, she coaxes the chicks. Whenever she finds anything, she does not eat it but leaves it for the chicks. With all seriousness, she fights and calls against the hawk and extends her wings so willingly, and permits the chicks to crawl under her and upon her. It is a fine, pleasing picture. Thus also Christ assumed a sorrowful voice, has lamented for us, and preached repentance, and has shown to every one of us our sin and woe with all his heart. He opens up the beauties of Scripture, coaxes us in and permits us to eat, and spreads his wings with all his righteousness, merit, and mercy over us and takes us under Him in such a friendly manner, warms us with His heat, that is, with the Holy Spirit, who comes only through Him, and fights for us against the devil in the air. End of that quote. So beautifully put by Mr. Paul Kretzman from 1921. Yeshua is a merciful and a loving Messiah to those who realize they need to be saved from their sins. Next verse, Matthew 23, 38. Yeshua says, See, your house is left to you desolate. Now this falls on the heels of the condemnation of the leaders of Judah in Jerusalem in verse 37. They weren't willing to allow the anointed one, Yeshua the Christ, to gather the people. And they even murdered the holy men sent to them. And so he tells them, your house is left to you desolate. The word desolate carries the meaning of lonesome, waste, solitary, a wilderness. He pictures a house that was once dwelt in, but is now empty. And I think the meaning is twofold. I want to go over both of the meanings I think he intends from this, your house is left to you desolate. First, remember that Yeshua is in the temple complex when he says this. When he says your house is left to you desolate, he's standing in the temple. Remember, he entered the temple back in Matthew 21, 12 through 13. Let's look at it. Matthew 21, 12 through 13 says, Yeshua went into the temple complex and drove out all those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. Now here, Yeshua is angry with the merchandising of the house of Yahweh. What house? The temple. He even quotes his father Yahweh in the Old Testament from the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah where Yahweh says his house is to be a house of prayer. But notice that they 
they had turned his house into a den of thieves. Why did he say den of thieves? You made it a den of thieves. Well, this could be because of their actions outside of the temple. We know from Matthew 23 that the scribes and Pharisees were thieves. They stole from the widows. Yeshua may have said den of thieves, alluding to them being thieves, and then using their temple like a den, like a hideout. In other words, well, we can do what we want and then come to the temple and everything will be okay. Just like Isaiah chapter 1. We can live any way we want to live, not take care of orphans, widows, have hands full of blood, and then come to the temple and everything will be okay. But everything is not okay because Yahweh demands repentance and confession, not pride and false piety. He could have also been alluding to their false weights and measures in selling sacrificial animals. If you study this, during this time, the leaders in Judah promoted their animals, the ones they had for sale at the temple complex, as the only animals that were pure for sacrifice. So the people were led to believe that these were the only animals that Yahweh would accept. The leaders would then sell these animals at an inflated price, thus thieving from the people. Either way, and it might be both, they had turned Yahweh's house of prayer into a den of thieves. Next time somebody asks you what would the Messiah do, you can tell them it is in the realm of possibility that he would get very upset and overturn money changers' tables and make a whip of cords and start going haywire on the unrepentant. What was supposed to be the house of Yahweh, the house that Yeshua calls my father's house in Luke 2.49, he now calls your house in Matthew 23.38. Your house is left to you desolate. Yeshua is talking about the temple here. He's inside of the temple complex when he says this. He's been in it ever since Matthew 21 when he drove out all the money changers. He's been in the temple complex, Matthew 21, 22, and 23. But notice what he does right after this. In Matthew 24, verse 1, the next chapter, if we go by chapter and verse divisions, which are not inspired, mind you, in Matthew 24, 1, we read that Yeshua left the temple. And I think that he was performing a symbolic act here. He now called it your house instead of my father's house. And he turned his back on it and he walked out of it. That fits the judgment theme that we've seen from Matthew 21 all the way through Matthew chapter 23. Now, think about the parable of the vineyard again. I want to speak of the second fold use of house in Matthew 23, 38, where he says, See, your house is left to you desolate. I believe the first fold use is the temple. Now we're going to talk about the second fold use of house in that verse. When I talked about the parable of the vineyard a few lessons ago, I mentioned briefly that it described Yahweh's divorce of the house of Judah. And I'd like to explain that in more detail in this lesson. Beginning in Matthew 21, verse 33. Yeshua tells the chief priests and the Pharisee elders is who he's talking to here. This parable is specifically about them. They even understand that at the end. He says in verse 33, Listen to another parable. There was a man a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a watchtower. He leased it to tenant farmers and went away. When the grape harvest drew near, he sent his slaves to the farmers to collect his fruit. 
But the farmers took his slaves, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first group, and they did the same to them. Verse 37, finally he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? He will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him, and lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his produce at the harvest. The chief priests and Pharisee elders recognize and give an answer to what should be done to the tenant farmers in the parable. But the problem is, they are the tenant farmers. They're the ones who the son was sent to. And they rejected him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. They are the ones that rejected the son of the landowner. And remember, in the parable, the landowner stands for Father Yahweh, and the son that is sent stands for Yeshua the Messiah. Now, look at the next verses that we didn't cover last time. Here is Yeshua's reply to the chief priests and Pharisee elders after they say what they say in verse 41. Yeshua said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from Yahweh and is wonderful in our eyes. Now that's a direct quote from Psalm 118, verses 22 through 23. If you make notes in your Bible, I make a lot of notes in my Bible. It helps me to remember. You can make a note at Matthew 21, 42 to reference to Psalm 118, 22 through 23 because that's where Yeshua is quoting from that psalm. We'll be coming back to that shortly. Yeshua is the stone that came from Yahweh. He was sent by Yahweh, and the chief priest and the Pharisees are the builders who rejected the stone, the cornerstone, which is the most important stone in a building. The cornerstone was a stone at the base corner of a building. It connected two walls and holded them securely together. It was bigger than all the other stones. Everything was pulled square from that cornerstone, and everything was dependent upon that cornerstone. And Yeshua, the son of the landowner, Yahweh, was that cornerstone. But the builders, the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisee elders of Judah, rejected the cornerstone. Notice Matthew 21.42 says that this came from Yahweh. That's where the stone came from, Almighty Yahweh, Psalm 118. Yahweh is the landowner, and Yahweh is the one who laid that stone, and that means Yahweh is the one who sent that stone. As Peter preached to the men of Israel on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 by saying this, listen to these words, verse 22, This Yeshua of Nazareth was a man pointed out to you by Yahweh with miracles, wonders, and signs that Yahweh did among you through him. Yahweh pointed out Yeshua because Yahweh had sent Yeshua. Yahweh did those miracles through Yeshua because Yahweh had sent Yeshua. Yeshua was the stone that came from Yahweh. And more so than all of Yahweh's servants, the prophets, Yahweh sent them too. Remember in the parable of the vineyard when it says Yahweh sent the slaves or the servants to the tenant farmers? 
Those servants are slaves. That represents the prophets. If you read in the prophet Jeremiah, all of Yahweh's prophets are called His servants, the prophets. Those prophets are sent from Yahweh too. And yes, they're part of the foundation, as even the apostles are. Ephesians 2 verse 20. But Yeshua is the chief stone of the corner. He's not just a stone. He's the cornerstone. He comes directly from Yahweh. He's the stone that Daniel chapter 2 prophesies about that comes off of the mountain without the hand of a man. Yeshua comes directly from Yahweh. Yahweh begat Yeshua in the womb of a virgin woman by the power of His Spirit. Yeshua is Yahweh's Son. Yahweh really does have a Son. And that Son is sent directly from Yahweh and is the chief stone of the corner in this glorious building that we are all part of, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. They're big stones, but Yeshua the Messiah is the chief stone of the corner. And then we're the house that goes up, praise Yahweh, if, if we accept the cornerstone. We can't be like the builders who rejected the cornerstone. We have to accept the cornerstone that Yahweh sends. We can accept the stone or we can reject the stone like these builders did here in Matthew 21. They rejected the stone. Remember John 1.11. He came unto His own, but His own received Him not. Specifically talking about the house of Judah of which He was a part. And Yeshua told them, haven't you ever read this part in the Scriptures? Now these guys claim to be the big students of, of the Holy Scriptures. And He says, haven't you ever read this part? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief stone of the corner. This came from Yahweh. Hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. They were the builders. Yeshua was the stone. And they set Him to the side, rejecting Him in their building. So what happens to the leaders of Judah when they reject Yeshua? Well, He tells us. We don't have to wonder. He tells us. Look at the next verse. Matthew 21, verse 43. Therefore... Therefore means on the basis of what I've just said about the parable of the vineyard in Psalm 118. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of the Almighty will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing its fruit. Therefore, on the basis of your rejection of the stone, the kingdom of Yahweh will be taken away from you. Taken away from you. If something is taken away from you, it means that you had it at one time, right? Of course it does. And the kingdom being taken away is speaking of the divorce of the house of Judah. Now if we know our biblical history, if we're Bible students, we know that Yahweh described His relationship with the nation of Israel, all twelve sons, all twelve tribes, in marriage language. Yahweh is typified as the husband and Israel is often typified as the bride or the wife of Yahweh. Hosea 1 through 2, Hosea the first chapter and the second chapter, is one of the clearest texts in the prophets on this. It shows that Yahweh speaks symbolically of the marriage that he had with Israel that ended up in the divorce that he pronounced upon Israel. Just to make myself clear, I'm not saying, and I don't think anybody understands it this way, but just in case, later on down the line, whoever hears this, it's not as though Yahweh was literally married. Yahweh speaks in this metaphorical marriage language to describe His relationship with His people like a husband who loves his wife. 
Hosea 2, verse 2. Rebuke your mother. This is Yahweh speaking. Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the promiscuous look from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. What happened in Hosea 2, 2 is that the Israelites were to be the people of Yahweh. They were to serve Him and be devoted to Him, Echad, alone. You know, that's what the famous passage in Deuteronomy 6 and 4 actually means. The more that I study the Shema, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, the most important commandment in the whole law, it's a commandment about who our devotion is to belong to. It's not so much a commandment about how many Yahweh is as it is a commandment about our devotion should be solely to Yahweh. He says, listen and obey this, Israel. Hear, Shema, listen, obey this. Yahweh is your mighty one. Yahweh, most Bibles say Yahweh is one. Probably better translated Yahweh alone. Israel, Yahweh is to be your mighty one and Yahweh alone, Yahweh Echad is to be your mighty one. Your devotion is to be solely to Yahweh and no other mighty ones. That's a statement about Israel's relationship to Yahweh as it should be. Their heart and their mind were to belong only to Yahweh, or to Yahweh alone. Just like the heart and the mind of my wife, Tisha, is to be solely devoted to me, her husband. Well, what happened? Well, Israel violated Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. She went after other mighty ones and served them. And she was then described, metaphorically, as playing the harlot on her husband. And that's why we read in Hosea 1 through 2 about the divorce of the house of Israel by Yahweh. He had put up with it long enough. And therefore he said, I'm getting rid of you. You're not my wife. I'm not your husband. Look at Exodus 19. I'm trying to put some of these texts together to help us better understand. Exodus 19 shows a type of marriage covenant between Yahweh and the people of Israel upon Mount Sinai. This is when he instituted this covenant, sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant, which is a marriage covenant between Yahweh and the Israelites. Exodus 19, 3-8. Moses went up the mountain to the Mighty One, and Yahweh called him to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob. Who is Jacob? Jacob was the man in Genesis whose ancestors were Abraham and Isaac and then Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, therefore his sons were called Israelites. Okay, That's who he's talking to, the house of Jacob. He explains this to the Israelites. Verse 4, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Now, if you will listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although all the earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests, and my holy nation. These are the words that you were to say to the Israelites. And after Moses came back, he summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words that Yahweh had commanded him. And then all the people responded together, we will do. That's the I do. Yahweh gives the, the marriage covenant. He says, I, you saw what I did to the Egyptians? I brought you to me, brought you to myself as it were on eagle's wings. And I made a covenant with you. And if you obey me, you'll be my special possession. You'll be my wife, is what he's saying. And they say in verse 8, we'll do everything that you've spoken. So Moses brought the people's words back to Yahweh. And that's beautiful. That's the marriage contract. Yahweh wiped out the Egyptians and carried the people of Jacob Israel unto himself. 
And then he gives them a covenant or an agreement or a contract. He says, if you'll listen to me and keep my words, you'll be my special treasure above all other people's. And verse 6 is very important because he tells them in this marriage covenant, you will be a kingdom. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Take note of that word kingdom in verse 6. We're going to get back to it in Matthew 21 shortly. Well, the people respond, all that Yahweh has said we will do. But there's a problem here. And the problem is that the nation of Israel did not do all that Yahweh told them to do. They soon bickered among themselves so badly and abandoned Yahweh's covenant so badly and did not keep His laws and sinned so badly that they split into two groups, north and south. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And they constantly, over and over and over again, abandoned Yahweh's covenant. That was a problem because the covenant was conditional. It was a conditional covenant. Exodus 19, verse 5, it's still on the screen. If, if you listen to me and keep my covenant, then you'll be my special treasure. Then you'll be in a relationship with me. Well, they did not do that. And Yahweh divorced the northern house of Israel according to the book of the prophet Hosea because of their many transgressions. This is why Yahweh told Hosea to go marry a harlot because it typified what the Israelites were doing to Yahweh. Yahweh had him marry an idolatrous woman that would play the harlot on him. And then Yahweh would say, Hosea, prophet, my prophet, my servant, take her back. Then she'd do it again and he'd say, Hosea, take her back. And the people of Israel were like, what's wrong with you, Hosea? Why do you keep taking this woman back? She keeps playing the harlot on you and worshiping other gods. And then Hosea would say, I know, but what you're seeing me do to Gomer is what Yahweh has been doing to you. You keep whoring after other gods and worshiping other mighty ones, and yet Yahweh keeps in His tender mercies and in His love, He keeps bringing you back. But finally Yahweh said, I'm fed up with it, and I'm getting rid of the house of Israel. But see, Yahweh only divorced the northern house of Israel at the time of the prophet Hosea. If you read Hosea 1.7, look at it. Hosea 1.7, you'll see that Yahweh says He will continue to have compassion on the southern house of Judah. Now, I believe that His reason for this compassion is because that His Son, Yeshua, would be sent through the tribe of Judah. Yeshua was a Judahite, a Yehudim. Yahweh could not send the cornerstone through a tribe that had been divorced and separated from Him. Yahweh was still wedded to Judah when Yeshua was birthed in Bethlehem of Judea. And Yahweh retained his marital status with Judah so that he could send his son through a house or a tribe that was still in some way in a relationship with him. However, after Yeshua was born, Yahweh's judgment came down upon the house of Judah just like he had formerly came down upon the house of Israel at the time of the prophet Hosea. Yeshua came to his own, the Yehudites or the Judahites, but his own received him not. That is, the large majority of them did not receive him. Thus we have the rebuke recorded in Matthew 23, 
or really Matthew chapters 21 all the way through 24, is the rebuke on the house of Judah. Yahweh was not going to let Judah off of the hook because she had been just as promiscuous as her sister in northern Israel. Now, with all of that in mind, that was quick. You can go back and read those verses, meditate on those things, but with all of that in mind, read Matthew 21:43 again, where Yeshua says, right after the parable of the vineyard, to the chief priests and Pharisee elders, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of the Almighty will be taken away from you. Remember, taken away means that they had to have had it taken away from you and given to a nation producing its fruit. The kingdom will be taken away from you. Judah had it still, but the kingdom would be taken away from them. Why? The parable of the vineyard. They rejected the son that was sent to them. That was how they filled up the measure of their father's sins. They were the builders who rejected the chief stone of the corner. Yahweh gave them a cornerstone. He said, here he is. And they rejected him. They should have took him as the builders and put him there in the, the spiritual foundation. But they did not. In Exodus 19, the kingdom being given to all 12 tribes of Israel equals Yahweh's marriage covenant with Israel. In Hosea 1-2, through 2, Yahweh takes the kingdom away from northern Israel, which equals the divorce of the house of Israel. And in Matthew 21-43, Yeshua speaks of the kingdom being taken away from the southern house of Judah, which equals the divorce of the house of Judah. And when you study and learn Scripture as a whole, things come together. They start interweaving and coming together. Yahweh says it's going to be taken to you and given to a nation producing its fruit. Who is the nation that it's given to that will produce its fruit? Well, if you know the Bible, and you know Hebrews 8, 7 through 12, the nation that it's given to is the redeemed Israelites. Those in Israel who receive the cornerstone. Not all of those in physical Israel, but only those who receive the cornerstone of the building. That's the nation that it's given to. Maybe I'll teach on that from 1 Peter chapter 2 in the future. Now all of this makes verse 39 come to light. It's the last verse in Matthew 23 and the last verse in our chapter study. Let's read Matthew 23, 37 through 39 together one more time as we close. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will never see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. That last verse, verse 39, ties into the parable of the vineyard. Because in the parable of the vineyard, Yeshua quotes from Psalm 118. Catch this now. Listen carefully. In the parable of the vineyard, Yeshua quotes from Psalm 118 about the cornerstone coming from Yahweh. He is the stone that the builders rejected. And here, in Matthew 23:39, Yeshua quotes again from Psalm 118. He quoted from Psalm 118 in Matthew 21, and he quotes from Psalm 118 in Matthew 23:39 about him coming in the name of Yahweh. 
both times he's quoting from the same psalm. And both times he's talking about the same thing. Yeshua came from Yahweh, meaning Yahweh sent Yeshua. That's what coming in the name of Yahweh means. It means that Yahweh sent you and you have Yahweh's backing. You did not come on your own accord. You came based upon the power of Yahweh. Catch this. When a man actually, even today, when a man comes to you in the name of Yahweh and you accept that man, you are accepting Yahweh. But when you reject that man, you are rejecting Yahweh. Tonight, Brother Matthew is coming to you in the name of Yahweh. Right now, I come to you in the name of Yahweh from the Scriptures. If you reject the Scriptures that I have given to you, you reject Yahweh. But if you accept them, you accept Yahweh. Now, the best and most well-known example of this that I can think of is when David battles Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. Goliath of Gath, the, the giant, the literal giant, he thinks that he's about to kill David by sword, spear, or javelin. He thinks it's not going to be any contest. This little peon, this little shepherd boy, is coming to, to fight me, a giant, almost ten foot tall when we do the math there in 1 Samuel. But there was no way possible that Goliath would win that battle. It was impossible. Why? Because Yahweh doesn't save by many or by few. Yahweh doesn't need a big army to, to win a battle. Yahweh is omnipotent. He can win any battle that He wants. And the reason that he would lose, Goliath would lose the battle with David is because David in 1 Samuel 17 verse 45 looked at that giant, Goliath, and he said, you come to me with a spear, a sword, and a shield. David had none of that. And David said, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh. Think about this. When Goliath was fighting David, it was like he was fighting Yahweh. There was no way David was going to lose. Let that be an encouragement to us. When we come in the name of Yahweh, when we have Yahweh on our side, when he, when he backs us, things may get rough, things may seem tight, but there is no way we can lose because Yahweh is on our side. Hallelujah. Yahweh fought for David. The same thing applies to Yeshua. He came to the people in the name of Yahweh, just like David did when facing the giant. Yeshua is the cornerstone that came from Yahweh. You can read about that in Psalm 118, 22 through 26. Yahweh sent the stone. This came from Yahweh. The King James, I think, says this is Yahweh's doing, but the chief priests and Pharisees did not believe that Yeshua was sent by Yahweh. They didn't think He came in the name of Yahweh. They rejected Him. And by rejecting Him, they were rejecting Yahweh because Yahweh backed Yeshua. Yeshua gives the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23 an offer of repentance here in verse 39. It's a conditional offer, but it is an offer of repentance. After all of this rebuke, He tells them, you will not see Me again, meaning you won't be able to believe in Me or receive Me again until, until you say, Blessed is he, that's Yeshua, who comes to them, 
in the name of Yahweh. Until they recognized that Yeshua really did come from Yahweh, Yahweh really did send him, they would be in a state of condemnation. Only through Yeshua, the cornerstone, could they receive salvation. And that is the end of Matthew 23. At least, at least, if we're going by the chapter division placed in our Bibles. But remember, the chapter and verse divisions are not in the original manuscripts of the New Testament. Those are added in at a much later time. Not that they're sinful, not that they're wrong all the time, but sometimes we need to get them out of our mind so that we can continue the thought process. Because here, you, you really need to just wipe out chapter 24 because the thought process continues. Because right after he says, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh, the next verse, as Yeshua left and was going out of the temple complex, his disciples came up and called his attention to the temple buildings. What temple buildings? Well, the ones he just came out of. Not any in the future. The ones that he was in that day. That temple complex. And thus we begin our study into Matthew chapter 24. If you understand Matthew 23, if you have a good grasp on Matthew 23, you will get Matthew 24 right. If you do not understand Matthew chapter 23, you won't understand the judgment coming of Yeshua in Matthew chapter 24. I don't know if I'll start 24 next week. I've got a few other things on my mind, different subjects, but, but I might. Who knows? Let's stand and close in a word of prayer. Almighty Yahweh, thank you for another opportunity to teach your word. I pray, Father Yahweh, that your word would do exactly what you would have it to do. I ask for a good understanding. Father, may we, may we be a repentant people. May we pray to you, Father, lowly and in humility. Uh, may we never think that we are anything of ourselves. May we never follow after the example of the scribes and Pharisees in this chapter but rather come to Yeshua, believe in Him as the stone that came from Yahweh, and cry out, Save now, save now. Blessed is He who comes in the name of Yahweh. I love you, Father Yahweh. I love your Son. It's through Him I pray. Amen.